0: Show you a better way. You be, Hi, folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 7th, 2019. This is episode 2525 of the Survival Podcast. if man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may fall. Well, there you go, a little uh, pop culture reference from time in the past there, but looking at the future, Zager and Evans with twenty five twenty five when I realized that was the episode. Immediately thought of that song, which we've played a couple times, and it wasn't enough to preempt our song of the day, but I thought throwing a few bits of it there in uh, at the beginning to recognize that numeric pattern would be a little bit fun. Anyway, this is a listener feedback show because it is a Monday. Here's what we got on the de- uh, deck for you today an amazing quote that fits so well with what we've been talking about, but it's so much bigger than the quote itself. Came from a Tim Ferriss newsletter. Uh, one of the listeners sent it in because I've been doing quotes of the day. You're going to like this one. Uh, How about this? The math alone says you should be a prepper. The math alone. Just when you do the math, you should be a prepper. We'll talk about that. A good article on it as well. For years, the government said people didn't save enough money. Banking institutions said people didn't save enough money. Financial advisors said people didn't save enough money. Turns out, you say something long enough, people might actually start doing it. And the millennials are saving more money than Gen X and the baby boomers did. And do you know what the reward for it is? They're being told they're stingy, and they're the ones making the economy not as good as it could be. They should be spending more of their money. You just can't make this shit up. It's it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, can you grow long-term perennials in hoogle beds better yet, should you? I made a comment recently that prompted this as a comment on the blog. I'll handle it today on the air. That way it'll help more people than just one person in a comment. A guy tries keto for a kid with behavior issues. He has an interesting bet for you to take if you doubt him. I'm interested to see if anybody out there that says that this stuff doesn't do the stuff people say it does is willing to take this bet. I'm not taking it. I'm not taking it at all. Oh, I'm still waiting for someone to get my 100 bucks yet because everybody knows. You know, that's the statement everybody makes. Everybody knows that eating fat causes increased risk of heart disease and cancer. Two weeks now, I'm still waiting for somebody to show me a single, a single scientific study with credible methodology that's been repeated anywhere to prove that it's true that actually shows the effects of somebody eating high quality fats like we eat on a keto diet and shows then a correlation between that and cancer that also includes carbohydrate restriction I'm still waiting almost a quarter million people listen to this show every day everybody knows but not one person not one person can give me a study isn't that interesting Uh, next up Uh, Same guy that has this uh, report on his kid is trying to do keto himself, and he's going on active military duty, and uh, he wants to know how to stay keto on military duty. I'll talk about that. It's not completely easy, but you can can do fairly well, at least on my memory of Chow Hall anyway. Now, if you're going to be living on MREs, um, probably not. Uh, somebody asked a question about making a mead that I made uh, a few years ago called Sinvin Gin. And it's spelled C-I-N instead of S-I-N, but I probably should call it Sinvin Gin with S-I-N because it's kind of a sinfully glorious mead. Uh, and they were looking for how to make it on the website and could not find it. I'm going to tell you how to make it, but I'm also going to tell you how to free yourself from ever needing anybody's freaking personal recipe to make your mead. Uh, a question on indoor aquaponics for greens in the winter. Coinbase is now offering 1.25% interest to hold stable coins. So that's better interest than you get in the bank to hold a coin that's basically a representation of the US dollar as though you were holding it in a bank account. Hmm. What's up with that? And where might some of this be going? And where might some of the people criticizing what they call the Bitcoin maximalists actually be wrong? And maybe the maximalists. All right, we'll see. I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying maybe things are going to change more than anybody ever thought in the world of economics and banking and cryptocurrency. Just maybe. I'm not saying it will. Just maybe. Um, Guy sent me a little clipping out of his newspaper, basically how states might game the federal college grant industry by allowing for free college or at least free community college. But what we really learned from this and I've got a little call out at the end. Help me create an awesome life hack show, maybe even a series. That's starting to go pretty well with people sending in hacks. I had quite a few for today. I decided to put them in their own folder because they could be covered so quickly and see if I can build enough to make a whole show of life hacks submitted by this audience. All that and more, in just a minute before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, it is Butcher Box. Um, when you're trying to eat healthy meats, what you want from your beef is you want Grass-fed beef. An actual grass-fed beef. See, all beef can be called grass-fed if people cheat because, well, all cows eat grass at some point in their existence. You want to make sure they ate grass all the way through. For poultry, you want pastured poultry. You want pork that gets out and gets to be a pig in a real pig world. Well, ButcherBox has all of that and more, and they ship it in a box right to your house every month. You can change your box up any time. If you need to skip a month because you don't have the money this month or you're just not going to be home, you can skip a month. Uh, you can do add-ons. They have some really great specials from time to time. And they're the only sponsor I have that pays me in product. ButcherBox doesn't pay me in money. They don't pay me in Bitcoin. They don't pay me in silver. They pay me in meat. If I accept payment in meat, you know it's great meat. Check them out today, butcherbox.com. And remember, if you're an MSB member, you get 10 bucks off your ButcherBox for life. That's $120 a year on my membership that's 50 bucks a year. It's a pretty good sponsor and a pretty good deal, if you ask me. Next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. This was the company that when they said, will you, will you let us sponsor you? I'm like, sure. Like, well, you, you said you have a really strenuous thing that you put sponsor. Yeah, I, but I've been reading you guys for like almost 20 years at that point. At this point, I've been reading these guys since 1993, and it's 2019, and I'm still a subscriber. So, do you think that I recommend them? Yeah, you bet I recommend them. So, you guys want to go ahead and check out BackwoodsHome.com if you never have, and consider becoming a subscriber. They went away for a little while. Uh, they were going to put that magazine to bed after uh, a long time, and they decided, you know what? This time we're going to we're going to make a, a, a new a new run with it. They expanded it, made it a little bit bigger per ep, for edition. So instead of getting six editions here, you get four, but you get about the same amount of content. That cuts down print, because print is a tough business to be in in 2019. But I think if you subscribe to Backwoods Home, you'll find that it's one of those publications you enjoy in print. It's one of the, the publications I like to read in what I call my private morning office. We all know what that is, so I won't tell you. But I love Backwoods Home Magazine, and the fact that I get to work with people who I read for almost two decades before I even started the show... It's pretty awesome. Check him out today, backwoodshome.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and start out with our quote of the day today. This came to me, I want to actually give the guy that sent this to me credit by at least first name because um, I just when I when I read it, I'm like, oh, that's definitely going on the air. Uh, this is Mike. Mike sent this, and he said, quote from a Tim Ferriss email newsletter. And I guess Tim said, here's a quote that I'm pondering right now. To be prepared against surprise is to be trained. To be prepared for surprise is to be educated. James P. Carr's Finite and Infinite Games, a vision of life as play and possibility. Um, Yeah, I mean, that really hits dead center with what we were talking recently. When I had Dr. Ken Berry on, and I said the, the problem that most doctors have today is they're trained versus educated, versus being taught. And that we train something, we train an organism, then it has to perform in a certain way. I can train a tree. I can train a slime mold. I train my dog. A doctor, I would prefer that they be educated. Well, this quote hit me so hard, and it was so close to what I was saying, I thought, well, maybe there's more to it. So I looked it up, and I have the whole paragraph from this this writing that, that explains it in more context. And boy... Wow! Where do you hear this? Again, from James P. Cars. To be prepared against surprise is to be trained. To be prepared for surprise is to be educated. Education discovers an increasing richness in the past because it sees what is unfinished there. Training regards the past as finished and the future as to be finished. Education leads toward a continuing self-discovery. Training leads to a final self-definition. Training repeats as a completed past in the future. Education continues as an unfinished past into the future. Yeah, I'll tell you one of the things that makes me think of. It's settled science. See, settled science isn't a thing if you're actually an educated individual. You understand that everything that we think we know needs to be continuously challenged going into the future. And this makes perfect sense. If I want to train you, then I have a specific set of conditions and a specific specific set of response to those conditions, and I want them to always be the same. So if I'm training you to process paperwork, then I'm going to train you. I, I don't need educated people to process paperwork. If I have someone that does medical insurance billing, it always gets done the same way. If there's something new, then we'll add that to the training. The person that can be educated about it and think on their feet and deal with the complexities is the end-up person that ends up managing all the people that are doing the training. The educated person becomes the manager, the person that runs the show, and the trained people are the ones that are just the cogs in the machine. And there's so much in that. I could probably do a podcast on this. I might in the future, but we'll just say the short version of it again for you and think about it as you go through this week. To be prepared against surprise is to be trained. To be prepared for surprise is to be educated. Man, I love that. I might have to actually read Finite and Infinite Games. It might be very interesting reading. With that, let's dig into this. Uh, Let's start off with, there's an article, and I'm not going to read it to you because it is absolutely long, and it includes, you know, since it's about math, a lot of mathematical formulas, um, but... It absolutely – sorry about that bit of an obvious delay there. When I set up the links in the uh, show notes today, um, the link to the quote uh, got double posted in the the link to the article I was trying to talk about was wrong. So I was trying to delay that. I had to just fess up. That's what was going on. Anyway, this was sent to me by Matthew from Northern Iowa who says – Here's an article from earlier last year that basically supports everything you say about wider prep, but with math. It's a long read, but basically the chances of some kind of disaster happening in someone's life is often higher than they realize. Even civil uprising in the U.S. has a 37% chance of happening in somebody's life. Um, Let's start off with the 37% and where that's coming from. They're not even talking about something regional like the L.A. riots or something like that. They're talking about nationwide... Uh, Complete upheaval. And the two examples they give is the American Revolution and the Civil War, or the War Between the States, as it's more accurately called. Um, I really don't like the way they characterize either of those events overall, but they're right. Like, if you lived here during either one of them, they were a major disruption. And based on that, and based on the number of years that have existed since the, uh, the colonies were a thing, Uh, So before we even became the United States, because you obviously got to start before, since we're including the revolution that created the country, uh, they came up with about 37% chance that in your life you would experience something similar just on the math. The truth is that's not even really accurate because they left out the War of 1812. Now you could say that it's a pretty small sample of time, and the well, you know, and we haven't had anything like that since 1865, when the war between the states ended. So it's been well over a hundred years without it. But if you actually look at other countries and you look at how much, how often national disruptions like that occur that are violent, um, the odds actually go higher that you will have to deal with something like that in your lifetime. But what if it was 10%? I mean, how many things are 10% that we have some sort of insurance for? And you might think, well, if there's a war jack, what is all this, you know? Because the point of this article is that preppers, the the, the non-crazy ones, um, that are not featured on non-reality TV are not preparing to go to war. They're if they're if they're thinking about war, they're thinking more about how how to survive all other people go to war. If some crazy crap breaks down. But let's let's then add this back in. Let's add things in like the LA riots. Let's add things in like Ferguson. And you might say, "Well, I'm insulated from that." So, you guys who've been here, you know where I live. I'm pretty far out in the sticks from downtown, but it's not that far. If my house was four stories high, I could stand on the roof and look at downtown Fort Worth. I mean to put it in perspective, but it seems like it's out in the sticks. So, even me, there's over 8 million people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, last week, we had the Amber Geiger decision. I'm going to tell you what. We were on higher alert here in this household. If that verdict had come back not guilty, I think there was a real chance of riots in Dallas and that, that it would have spread into Fort Worth. Would it have directly affected us? Maybe, maybe not. I definitely think my wife would have been on restriction from where she can go with her vehicle. I mean, I would have said, honey, you're just not going anywhere near downtown. I know you want to go down to Montgomery Plaza or whatever, but you're not doing it. It's not happening. So when you add in things like that, now let's add in the civil unrest sometimes that follows hurricanes. The hurricanes, the bad hurricanes we've had recently, have been really light on looting. They really have. We haven't had a lot of looting, a lot of civil breakdown around these hurricanes lately. But in the past, I mean, Katrina, Andrew, I mean... Those are two examples of hurricanes where a lot of people, whatever they had left was stolen or damaged while they bugged out. Now, you start adding that into it, and the odds that you're going to at least be in some way affected by civil unrest are probably a hell of a lot higher than 30%, 35%. Well, let's add individual threat to life and limb. Somebody trying to rob you, steal you, mug you, carjack you, etc., because if you're a gun-toting prepper, I'm assuming that means you're a concealed carry holder if that's legal where you are, and it's very few places left that it's not. So then you start adding that. And I mean, what is it, a 50% chance that some level of this will touch you? That doesn't mean that you'll end up living off rats while they, they lob mortars at each other, but it's pretty high. And then if we look at things like flooding, flooding's included in here. You know, I mean, you can mitigate that. One of the things I've always done is always look at my property when I'm buying it. And say, if there's a flood, what does my property look like? And I've done a pretty good job of picking properties that even when there's been some pretty bad flooding. I mean, three years ago, I guess it was, we had 28 or 29 days of rain in May. And over 20 of them exceeded an inch. Everything around here was flooded. Yeah, We had a big puddle in the backyard, but everything was fine. But how many people live where, you know, maybe they're not in a flood zone, but they're in a flood plain? I mean, the odds that you're going to need to rely on your preps are higher than that you won't. The other thing is, need and want are different. And sometimes want and fulfilling a want is a good thing. So a lot of people deal with these disasters fairly miserably, but they don't die and they don't lose everything. So... They, well, I didn't need to prep. Well, maybe you should have wanted to. So I think this is a really good article. It is really long, um, and there's a lot of math included in it. Um, but again, they're saying like there's a 37% chance that a person living in America today, by the numbers alone, would experience some sort of a uh, effect similar to a revolution. Um, there is just so much that can go wrong in the world and having the ability to make sure you can feed yourself you can have water uh, you can maintain or improvise shelter uh, that you can produce some of your own food through agriculture having medical supplies a way to defend those things and having some plan or method to get out to escape to bug out is basically what this article comes down on and Again, it uses math to prove that the stuff we've been saying for years and the stuff that this audience has been saying for years is absolutely right. Now, many of you don't need the article to tell you that because you've already used your preps. Um, I've had, over the years, hundreds of people say, hey, because we were prepared, X did not completely derail us. I've had it be anything from people that, that literally feel like their life was saved by being armed in a bad situation to people who simply said, "You know when I had to take my child to the emergency room for um, you know a, a an alarming diagnosis that was life threatening, uh, I could go straight there and be relatively comfortable. While I took care of my kid because a simple thing of that I had uh, preps in my vehicle and I had a bug out back and it's it's been everything in between lost jobs, et cetera you name it because the math is accurate here, and I always to trust math let's talk about another article that is uh, too long to read online but i think is really interesting um this one comes from i should be a little more organized than i am today so i apologize for the faint delay but this one comes from dylan and dylan says another article putting millennials in a negative light this time for saving too much money The article suggests that saving money is unpatriotic since it doesn't support the almighty economy. I always love to hear your thoughts on articles like this and look forward to a good Jack rant. Uh, Dylan, I don't know how much rant you're going to get here, but this, yeah, you probably will. Uh, Let me read read a little bit of it for you, uh, the first paragraph and a half. Millennials, the selfie-obsessed, avocado-toast-loving generation might be behind slower economic growth, According to a research note last week from Raymond James, this new generation scarred by the financial crisis is saving more than the free spending boomers did before them, and it's causing an economic imbalance. According to data from the St. Louis Federal Reserve, the current U.S. personal savings rate defined as income minus spending... I want to stop for a second. I want to stop for a second right there. I wonder... How dumbed down the American people have to be to be to need to be have explained to them that personal savings is income minus spending. I I mean I I weep for my nation of dumbed down you know, educated idiots. I, I really do. Uh, Let me go back to it. According to the data from the St. Louis Federal Reserve, the current U.S. personal savings rate, defined as income minus spending, because you're too stupid to know what it means, is 8.1% as of August. By comparison, in 1996, the rate was 5.7%. Quote, the higher savings rate, we believe, has had a disinflationary impact, driving the relatively slow growth and low inflation in this recovery, causing the incentives for excess supply, and disinflation, deflation, biases in the global economy, And quote. Raymond James, analyst, Travis McCourt, wrote in a note to clients on Thursday. Hold on. I, I just, I grew up in school being told that people didn't save enough money. I've heard my whole life that one of the biggest weaknesses that we have in America is Americans don't save enough money. And I was probably about 20 years old by the time I realized well they don't want you to save money. They just want to talk about it like they want you to save money. It it and, and it's almost isn't it almost a constant? They say they want you to be healthy, but if, if you were really, really healthy and most of Americans are really, really healthy, what would that do to the, the drug industry? What would it do to the healthcare industry if most Americans were really, really healthy? The power company says they want you to lose use less power. But if everybody used less power, what would happen to uh, the, 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 the stocks of utility companies? If they make money for every kilowatt they sell, don't they want to sell more kilowatts? Doesn't it seem like there's a pattern of behavior here in the state, the government, and industry? that they say they want you to do things they don't actually want you to do? And the minute somebody does them, they start bitching about it? So here's what I'm seeing. And I've said this for a long time. I am hard on the part of the, the, the younger generation that's a bunch of pussies, okay? But judging that generation by that sub-segment is foolish. And one of the reasons I'm so down on public education is I have seen it take smart, um, hard-working, motivated young people and turn them in to freaking social justice warrior pussies. I've seen it happen, and that's part of why I am so down on the college system, which we get to kick later today and it's because they've been taught this way. but what what has happened is a a, a significant number of millennials. I mean, I want you to think about this like the the older millennials are like 35, 36 now I think thirty seven is the oldest millennial right now by the cutoff in the in the demographics somewhere in there, mid 30s. so when I started this show. Millennials, you know, the oldest millennials were like 24. The youngest millennials were like 15. 15-year-olds now aren't even millennials anymore. Now, what happens to people who are hardworking and dedicated to their lives and seeing to their families, etc., between about the ages of 25 and 35? They have a marked improvement in their success. They go from entry-level positions to middle management entrepreneurship etc they go from you know slaving away for 25 to 35,000 to a lot of them making fifty thousand plus many of them making over a hundred thousand dollars so this group of people who was so big on hey just you know relax and let's party and every like we were when we the Gen Xers were in that that age range right the the best of them have become leaders. They're running divisions. They're running companies today. They're commanding military units. That's what the millennials are doing. Stop believing all the bullshit that you've been told and realize like 11 years have happened that they've been talking about the millennials and the millennials, therefore, are 11 years older. Well, those that are becoming successful are looking at, in many instances, those boomers are their, their grandparents or their parents and they remember their whole lives thinking that their parents had it all worked out. And now they see a lot of times their parents are struggling with money and they don't want to be like that. They're looking at their, their older kind of bottom end of gen X siblings who went to college and have jobs as baristas. And they're like, well, I'm not getting a degree in, 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 you know, gender studies. I'm going to go get a degree in something that matters and go get a job. And once they do that and they start to realize, look, you can be successful what they're saying to themselves is, shit, I should, I should save more money. I'll tell you, there's another thing that's going on here. One of the, the downsides, this current generation of young people, and when I say this now, I'm talking like 15 to like 35 has. Unlike Gen X, and this is to our detriment, Gen X, we were a a, a, rebel, a, a generation of rebels. You told us to do something, we did the opposite. We were defiant. And that worked in a lot of places, but when it comes to saving your money, we probably weren't as good at it as we should have been. All right. The millennials have been trained for obedience. So when they are told, save your money, they don't hear, that ah, we don't really mean it. They just, because they have been trained, you are told to do it, you do it. So they're being told to do it, so they're doing it. When they get their first job, and they bring the financial liar in who explains the 401k plan, and he says, save 10% of your money if, they, if they're not living hand-to-mouth. If they have enough money to do it, somebody in authority just told me to do it. So they're doing it. And they're saving more money. And now it's a problem because this is a spending-driven economy. And this is the thing I've been trying to say. It, it ties into ketogenics with changing the way we eat. But it's not just there. It's in everything. All this shit about Chinese tariffs and all. I mean, how much money do Americans spend on things that not only they don't need, but in in two years they'll wonder why they ever wanted it? If you notice, like, the things that I try to recommend through T-SPAS, where I recommend things to buy on Amazon, I try to recommend things that you're going to own for the rest of your life, or at least they're going to have a really long life cycle, and they provide something for you during that I recommend high quality foods and ways to cook, ways to improve your life. I'd rather I'd rather you go out and spend you know hundred dollars a year, or even two hundred dollars a year on really great herbs and spices and seasonings and learn how to cook, than go spend you know that much a week going out to eat, because in that one year you can you can stay home twenty five out the dinners, and then you have the skill set you have more time in your life, you you have all of that. Plus, you've saved money. Like I try to edge you not toward consumerism, but towards the things that you bring into your life being investments. I think you're seeing the millennials become the generation I've always said they could become. They're becoming the new World War II generation. The generation that was labeled as pussies and lackluster is turning into the generation of savers and investors and hardworking, highly ethical, highly moral people. The bad news for them is, well I don't know if it's bad news, the concern is the group of youngsters coming behind you are going through the same system you did that's been made a hundred times worse when it comes to the pussification process of Americans. And you guys that are like in your 30s and you got cousins and, and, and stuff and young siblings and all that are still down there, you need to be pulling them up and teaching them, yes, save your money. Save your money. And this is, it is nothing new. What did George Bush, when he was president, George Bush too say, after 9-11, go shopping? They want you to spend money. When they gave tax cuts, they didn't say, you know what, this is money Americans can invest back into their lives. They said they'll spend it. <laughs> It'll be better for the economy. The economy is not some sort of mythical god that needs to be appeased. The economy doesn't always have to grow. If the economy was managed sensibly, it's designed so it always has to grow. And the Federal Reserve's bitching that there's not enough inflation. Is not inflation bad? As I've told you all along, the Federal Reserve wants two to three percent inflation a year to erode the value of your money to incentivize spending it. If your money inflates at has inflation of three percent. And you can only make two percent savings. In many ways, you're better off spending it, or you're forced to take more risk with your investments. If inflation's one percent, and we have a, a common sense system where you know interest on money is about three to four percent in relatively safe investments, then we're incentivized to save. And instead of having an incredibly booming economy, which you have is a very stable one. They don't want stability. And I'll tell you why. They make money on volatility. All of the the high frequency trading and all it requires volatility. They make the, the stocks have to go down so that they can go up. And they have to go down and up and down and up and down and up. They can't stay pretty steady and just slowly go up with little tiny corrections. That's that's for you with your dollar cost averaging dumbass. Right? But if they're if they're paying more for a fiber optic cable that's a foot shorter so they can get an advantage on the other side of the river from the New York Stock Exchange for their high-frequency trading, they're making money on little tiny up-and-down moves, bringing no value to the system whatsoever. So they don't want the millennials to save. They don't want you to be healthy. They don't want you to drive your car for two more years before you buy a new one. They don't want you to learn to do your own repairs. All This is what you have to understand about the system. Everything they say that you should be doing, when any group of people, whether it's millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, whatever, actually does it, all of a sudden it becomes a problem. I, I really want you to think, what would happen if the, the rate of heart disease and diabetes and cancer all went down by just 20% in America? What do you think It's a good thing? I want an honest answer. Well, what would the economic impact of that be? Especially the short-term, immediate economic impact. And when you say, but yeah, that's the short-term, isn't that all they ever seem to be worried about? How often does the nightly news talk about a 10-year trend versus what happened today? Because what happened today is what scares you into action, and that's what they want, to be able to control you like a freaking pinball, bouncing all over the place in whatever direction they see fit. So for years, the government said people didn't save enough, the millennials are doing it, and instantly they're attacked. Next up, I wrote an article. God, I guess this was uh, several years ago that was published on Permaculture News. It was 20, 2015, and it was called Don't Try Building Swales." This is a very, and I mean very, bad idea. And it was one I took a lot of heat for because people thought when I said don't build swells, I meant don't ever bury wood in the mound of a swale. And what I meant was don't build hoogle beds, big, giant hoogle beds with large wood cores, with swells behind them, because then you have a giant floating mass of mud and wood that can go cause lots of damage. And it probably won't work anyway for a variety of reasons. If you want to read that article and watch the video where I explain it deeper for those who didn't understand, you can, and I'll have a link in the show notes. But Leo, over at the Permaculture Research Institute blog, had a comment that popped up in my feed. And it's so long ago, I thought initially that it was... Uh my blog. I didn't even realize when it first came in because it was so long since I wrote that article. Uh I thought he meant a recent show where I mentioned this, so I decided to do it on the air. It said you mentioned hoogles are for growing short term perennials for movement to other locations. Is it possible to use a variation of the system for long term perennials? I'm about to have to move to an area of very poor soil and I have dozens of potted trees waiting for the move. I have no intention of combining hoogle beds and swales, but I'm considering digging a large hole and adding 30% timber, topping up with wood chips and soil, and then creating a gentle mound that would hopefully level out as it settled. My thinking is that the rotting timber at the bottom would provide a long-term food source. Do you think this would be effective, and would the trees cope with settling ground, considering 70% of them uh, to grow through before reaching the decaying timber? Is it likely to damage the roots? Um, It's not likely to damage the roots, but if you... First of all, the number of 30% of the fill being timber is probably okay. It's probably okay. Um, but I want to start out with something people seem to have a real hard time understanding. We don't need incredibly fertile, rich soil to grow trees. That's kind of the point. That trees can grow where, you know, tomatoes and potatoes can't. Trees are incredibly robust and trees Uh, especially through just being able to dig in and go deep along with what's known as the exudate process which means that they all plants do exudates and what an exudate is is the root of a plant and if that plant needs manganese for instance that root will put out an exudate that is like a little sweet globule of goo and that tree or that plant or whatever knows that if I put out this particular type of exudate, the microbes that come will be microbes that make manganese bioavailable. Because there's probably plenty of manganese wherever you are anyway. You only need a tiny amount. But the problem is most of it's locked up in a way the tree can't get to it. Trees, with their exudate process and the humic acid they create, have a much better ability to attract and to assist with exudate process for microorganisms to break down rocks and minerals into bioavailability. They have a much better ability to penetrate into rock crevices and rocky soils like caliches and stuff like that, and mine those minerals. So trees don't need a huge amount of highly fertile soil. This, I mean, if you look the massive forests that are in the rainforest, the soil is actually terrible. Yet yeah, they have massive forests. What they do like, and this is the thing I'm limited on, is deep soils so that they can get to moisture when there's you know droughts. The short answer for Leo is you can do this. You can do this. It, it won't really hurt. You probably will have, over time, a lot of settling. You're either going to have a lot of settling, and that leads to shifts in your roots and things being exposed that maybe you didn't want exposed, etc. Or if you don't have, you're going to dig a deep hole and put the wood in there. You've done nothing. If we go down deep enough that when we bury the wood, we put it into a truly anaerobic state, it's going to basically preserve it. So then you just have mummified wood. You might have a little carbon going on down there, exchange. You might have some fungi that can occupy the upper levels, but it's probably just not necessary. Uh, you're kind of going back to why this thing, the whole Hugel thing, is even done what it has. Hugel culture means hill culture. It does not mean burying wood. It means growing in hills. That's what the word means in German. Hugel culture. Hill culture. Sepp Holzer made this really, really famous, and he did a lot of Hoogles where he buried wood. And the reason was on the side of his mountain that he owned, that he wanted to make into a really productive farm, he had a bunch of fir trees. It was low-value timber. It, was, it would cost more to timber it out and sell it at the age that it was at than it would have to just cut it down and leave it where it was. Of course, if you leave it where it is, you have a bunch of it in the way. So since he was going to do hill culture anyway, he buried the wood. This is not something he invented. It's been done for a long time, and it does have some real advantages with helping to get through droughts, with building up carbon, with fungal things in the soil, and with building good, healthy soil. But that's the, that's the reason that it's done. If you build an actual hugel mound and you plant trees in it, you're building a mound designed to collapse. Now you have a great big tree with the ground collapsing underneath it. It may be okay. You know, most people actually plant trees too deep, so it may inadvertently help. If your tree looks like a telephone pole coming out of the ground and you don't see any root flare, your tree is planted too deep anyway. So It's possible. I wouldn't really do this unless you need to build up the soil because you can't plant into it because it's, it's like something I'm on, like, rock. What I would want to do is scatter that wood and let it decompose. Let the fungi do the work and build surface soil with it. If you want to do it, you can. It won't really hurt anything. But I think culture is something we all got really, really attached to. And the longer... I've lived, since understanding it, the more I've become a fan of using it in very specific situations, and only those very specific situations. And it's best suited for building massive amounts of good quality soil. And massive amounts of good quality soil are more necessary for annuals and less hardy perennials, berries and things like that. Where trees, with their massive root systems, and the fact that if they're deciduous, they're literally self-creating compost machines. If you think about an oak tree, once it's up to a certain size every year, how much leaves does it drop? And if they just stay on the ground where they are and rot back into the soil, a tree builds its own soil. That's why if you really want to build soil in a permaculture tree-based system, what you want to do is you want to plant way more trees than you want to have 10 years from now. And a bunch of those trees need to be... They, nitrogen fixers are great. We will be over-obsessed on the nitrogen fixation. What we need are pioneering, fast-growing trees that we can chop and drop. That's what you want. The fastest growing... If sumac, you know, staghorn sumac grows because you're in the northeast, plant it. Go out and get free seed and scatter it everywhere and plant it. And when it gets up to a certain height, pollard it, and it'll keep growing back, keep growing back, and keep dropping it to the ground. It doesn't matter what it is. You can... Mimosa is a great tree to do this with. Um, if you live far enough south, like Luc- Lucerne, Lucana and Moranga are great, but and they are nitrogen fixers. So is, uh, so is Mimosa, right? Mimosa is a, a nitrogen-fixing tree, but I don't care what it is. If you have a fast-growing trash tree that you can easily propagate within a food forest system, and you just keep chopping and dropping it, you keep adding material, you're mining the nutrient from the rock in the soil... The micronutrients, and you're putting it back to the soil, and nature will take it from there. And it's just an easier way to do things. I'd rather plant fast-growing trees by but from seed or sapling, than I would dig giant holes and try to bury timber. Just my thoughts. Next up from Christopher. Christopher says, "This is both on keto. Uh, he says another comment for you on keto and low carb eating. We have a six. I have a six-year-old son." On the lowest carb diet because he has legitimate ADHD and ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. Since we have started this dietary change, we have noticed that his overreaction to things are much easier to curb and he handles things better. Also, his sleep pattern overall emotions are much more even on this type of lifestyle. Even a few bits of potatoes is enough to spin him out of whack. We are not perfect. We do let him have very minimal amounts of bread and very clear treats, but we read every label. If you put this on the podcast and get any pushback, I will openly say this. I live in Minnesota. If you want to challenge me that food doesn't make a difference, you have an open invite to watch my boy for an entire weekend. Day one on low carb and day two, give him an average kid's diet. By the way, you get to deal with it for the entire day. Anybody want to take Chris's offer up? I don't. I don't like dealing with other people's kids on their best behavior. I I, I barely deal with my own grandkids, right? Kids running around, noise. I like peace and quiet. That's why I like the hunting fish. You you could, you know, shh, you'll scare the fish, even though it's not true. At least you could say that, right? Um yeah, I I bet. I bet. So, just a little anecdotal evidence there, but you know, it makes perfect sense to me though because what keto does is put the hormones in balance. It makes, if you're eating keto, leptin does what it's supposed to do. And what, there's three main hormones at play here. Leptin is the hormone that says, hey, you've had enough food. And when you eat lots of carbohydrates, we, we, we we weaken leptin. The next one, of course, is insulin. And when we elevate our blood sugar, then we elevate our insulin. And when insulin is high, we cannot burn fat. But it also just whacks out the body. So then all of a sudden, your insulin receptors on all your cells are not working. They're being overdosed with insulin. Think about it like this. If if you've never had a drug before and I give you a little bit of it, maybe it has a big effect on you. And if I keep giving you a little bit of it every day, you build a tolerance to it. Everything in biology tends to develop tolerances to things unless they're cumulative, and eventually then they become toxic, like a heavy metal or something like that. So, and, and insulin is kind of like both of those things. But as you have elevated insulin levels, all your receptor cells in your body that moderate how much glucose energy is taken into a cell to be burned, it takes more and more insulin to do the same thing. Don't think that doesn't affect your brain. The The, the most cutting-edge research... On Alzheimer's now says that Alzheimer's is most likely something that could be called type three diabetes. It's diabetes of the brain. So maybe it takes your whole life to do enough damage to the brain to make you not be able to remember, you know, who you are. But if, if it does that, and you have a kid with elevated insulin levels and it's changing the the, the, the biology and the chemistry of the brain. During the most developmental use, and they already have a predisposition to be hyper or, um, you know, defiant or whatever. Don't you think it can make it worse? Just, yeah. And, and then you, you have glucagon, and I don't want to turn this into a keto cast, so that's affected too. But I don't believe you can take three major parts of the endocrine system in the form of hormones and disrupt those without having some effect on the rest of the endocrine system. The thing kind of it all kind of goes together. I'm just saying. So anyway, if you doubt Christopher, he is totally happy with turning his kid loose on you for a couple days. But you got to deal with what you created. We'll see. Uh, number two, how do I do keto while on military duty in a place out of the way to cook? In a place without a way to cook my own food to keep perishables, I want to start a keto journey myself, and I'll be going on weapons qualification for four days in a few weeks. If I start keto before I want to keep up on it pro tips um, so I don't know if you're eating out of mermites in the field which if they still have those things which are basically like these big cans and then the food goes in like a sleeve and there's hot water in there and you know they, you eat what you get if you're if you're' no, if you, some of the training missions I went on um, while you're in the field you're eating Mres and you just you're kind of stuck if that's what you're doing If you have access to a chow hall, now, I served in the military until 1993. It's been a while, okay? I'm an old man now, so things may have changed. But if I think back to, like, my chow hall, it would have been no struggle whatsoever to do keto for breakfast. Because we had made-to-order omelets. And they would make anything you wanted. Most of the places I was, like, they had, like, a main item of the day, like, you know, pork chop or something like that. And then there was, like, kind of, like, a uh, short order cook-like area, too, where, like, you could get a burger just about any day, things like that. If that's the case, then, you know, a burger without a bun is about as keto as it gets. And You're not going to eat clean keto. You're not going to be eating grass-fed beef. Um, there's usually vegetables. There's usually some raw vegetable salad-type stuff. So, I mean, if you have a chow hall, you can do that. And you can do fairly decent with this the other thing you can do and i just have a new video out today on salad hacks is a lot of the stuff that i recommend for salads not all of but a lot of it doesn't need to be refrigerated so again if you're in barracks or something like that things like um you know avocado oil that can boost your fat and it doesn't need to be refrigerated cool dark place so no wall walker Right, so uh, things like that. So I don't really know where you're at with this, dude. As far as what your environment's gonna be, but if you're gonna be in the range for four days, then you're gonna be in the range for four days. Like if, if you mean when you say weapons qual, you're going out in the field to live in the field, then you got to eat what they give you mostly. Everything else is considered pogie bait, even if it's healthy, right? Pogie bait for the uninitiated is when they send you to the field and you bring M and M's with you and other shit you store and hide. It's called pogie bait. If you get caught with it, you're in deep shit, right? Um, so I, 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 would actually defer to the currently serving. Do any of you guys that are in military service currently do low carb keto? And if so, what do you do? You can write in, you can comment on the blog, you can call the think line. I'd love to hear some on that. Cause I think this is something that it's better crowdsourced, uh, than me trying to answer it. Next up, Jake, I want to move quick here toward the end of this, um, Jack, I'm looking for some uh, uh, some details on your cinnamon, vanilla, ginger, or synvin' gin mead. But my search is coming up empty. Can you help me out a little? Going through your YouTube videos, it looks like you start out with three pounds of honey, one packet of each of your two yeasts, a bit of Furmax, and a Meyer lemon. But that's all I found. What's next? Uh, thanks, Jake. I don't remember using the Meyer lemon and the synvin' gin. I've used a lot of Meyer lemon um, in meads over the years. And that probably did make synvin' gin both ways with and without it. But let me... This is what I... You're almost there anyway, okay? This idea that if you want to make a a black cherry mead or a persimmon mead or a cinnamon vanilla ginger mead, you need Jack's recipe, It, it actually to me is the exact opposite of the way we should approach making mead. We need to stop this idea... That it's my meat, and my meat is the best, and you've got to follow my recipe. Like, there are some things I've come up with, like the three flowers blend, which is the three quarter cup of the three flowers blend. That, you know, I put It's such a simple thing to give people that I say, you yeah, do it that way. Three pounds of honey to the gallon, et cetera. Let me tell you, I couldn't tell you exactly what I put in any batch of Sinvin Gin meat. I don't know, because it's not that important to me. This would be my best guess off the top of my head. I would make the mead, and I would use the firmax because cinnamon, vanilla, and ginger all can become overpowering. So if I was going to put anything in the mead, it would be the ginger. Because I want, really, I want that ginger bite. So I'm going to make the mead, and if I want to use some acid from like a Meyer lemon or lemon or orange, some zest and some juice, fine. How much? I don't know. So honest to God, I don't know, half, half of, the juice of half of a lemon and the zest of half a lemon? Half a Meyer lemon? Sure, throw it in there. See? that's I mean, that's honestly how I think. Then I'm going to use the ginger. Ginger, i am probably use about two ounces. I'm probably not even going to weigh it. I'm going to cut the ginger into something approaching something that looks like French fries. And I'm going to go, yeah, that's about how much. Throw that in the bottom. And I'm going to pour hot water over it to pasteurize it. I'm going to add my honey. I'm going to make up with the yeast and the Fermax yeast, 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 yeast nutrient about a one-gallon primary fermentation with that amount with three pounds of honey and water. I'm going to ferment it. When the big, badass fermentation subsides, I'm going to move it into a secondary fermenter. I'm going to rack it at about 10 to 14 days. If I don't get to it for 21 days, it's fine. It'll be Okay. I'm not going to get upset. It's okay. I'm going to rack it and I'm going to in the secondary fermenter, I'm going to put the cinnamon and vanilla in there. I'm going to probably use one vanilla bean cut in half and split lengthwise so it's in four pieces and throw it in there. Okay? For cinnamon, I'm going to probably use one stick of Ceylon cinnamon, maybe two, depends on how big they are. Break them in a few pieces. Throw it in there. I'm going to take hot boiling water and put just enough hot water in there to barely cover it, and I'm going to swirl it around. right? That's going to pasteurize it. Now I'm going to rack my new meat in there. I'm not going to worry. It's going to be too hot because within a couple seconds the temperature is going to be down. It's only a little bit of hot water. and I'm going to rack it, and then I'm, I'm going to do the same thing no matter what I'm making. I'm going to use clean water out of my Berkey, and I'm going to top that up to a full gallon. I'm going to fix an airlock, and I'm going to run a secondary fermentation. Once the secondary fermentation gets down and starts to clear, I'm going to taste it. In fact, I'm probably going to taste something like this. When you're using herbs and spices, they get a lot of character. So I'm probably going to taste this at about five more days. I'll take like a straw, rinse it off so that nothing's going to get mess up my mead, and stick it in there, put my finger over it like a little mini wine thief, and I'm just going to taste it. And I'm not looking for it to be perfect yet. I'm just going to go, is there cinnamon? Is the cinnamon enough? Is the ginger enough? Is it? If it needs anything else, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get another fermenter. I'm going to add a little bit of fresh. I'm going to rack onto it. I'm going to do the same trick with a little bit of hot water. And I'll taste it. And if I get to a point where I think it's really good but I don't think it's done yet, I'll rack again onto nothing so that I stop the infusion because it can get overdone. That's worst case scenario. How it usually plays out, I make it. I would make it with the ginger. I'm going to rack it onto the cinnamon and the vanilla. I'm going to taste it and go, that's about right. A little more vanilla. And I'm going to cut a little piece of vanilla bean off. I'm going to put it like in a little tiny cup, and I'm going to pour hot water on it. And I'm going to dump that in there. And I'm just going to wait until it's clear. Then I'm going to bottle it. That's 90% of the time. If I got something I'm like, man, that's really got a lot to it. There's a lot of flavor, and maybe I don't want to get any more. I might do a third rack. That's it. There's the and no matter what you're doing, like three pounds of honey to a gallon, the yeast blend and the firmax. and then if it's fruit, do four cups of fruit. Do a pound of fruit. Do four cups of fruit. If it's an herb, throw some in there. How about cucumber cucumber mint mead? Well, that sounds complicated. No. Make the same mead, peel and chop up one cucumber, throw it in first so you can put some hot water on it, so you can pasteurize it, and then when you go to the secondary, take a small handful of mint, just a loose handful of mint leaves, throw it in the fermenter, dump some hot water on it, rack it over there. You want to make a cherry mead? Throw a pound of cherries in the fermenter, make the mead, when you get to two weeks in-ish, when the main fermentation is down, rack it to a secondary, top it up to three gallons, throw an air, lock it up until it clears. You want to make a peach mead, put a pound of peaches pitted into the fermenter. Make the mead about two weeks in, whenever it starts to at least slow down and kind of sort of clear. Rack to a secondary, top it up. You want to make a blueberry mead, take a pound of blueberries. <laughs> you see where this is going. Always start off with about a pound of food, three pounds of honey. With your herbs and your spices, when you're making melamels and stuff like that, try it. You can always add more, but you can't take it back out. And if you add too much, make a batch of plain mead and blend the two of them together. Don't so give yourself permission to fail. Like, wow, you know what, that's that's just too much cinnamon and vanilla. It's just too much. It tastes like an eight of vanilla bean. Fine. Make a batch of stock mead. It's not going to go bad. It's mead. That's the beauty. Leave the other one in a secondary. Just don't let the airlock go dry. When the stock mead's done, blend the two together and taste it. It'll be fine. Relax, don't worry. Drink some mead, make some more. All right. Next up, Jake says, Would an aquaponic system as you describe for growing lettuce work as an indoor system for overwinter growing? Since adopting keto, we consume copious amounts of greens, agreed. It often gets a little on the dank side by the time we're ready to grocery shop again. I have plenty of space for growing indoors. In a second garage, I think a small aquaponics system would be a great way to keep the freshest greens possible to our plates. Temps are usually between 40 and 50 during the winter, but I could supplement the heat if needed. The garage space also stays in the 60-degree range in the summer, so I could continue growing indoors if needed as well. I remember you saying garage aquaponics video series last year. You said you recommended it indoors indoors. You didn't recommend it indoors, but I don't remember if that was because it wasn't cost effective or there was another reason. Well, Jake, the main reason I don't recommend doing aquaponics indoors unless you have a reason, which you do, is that then you have to pay for light. So why would I pay for light when the sun gives me light every day? But I want to grow in the winter because it's too damn cold to grow outside. That's a good reason. I want to grow in the summer because it's too hot outside and all my lettuce bolts. That's a good reason. I want to grow greens is now we have a perfection. If you said you want to grow tomatoes and peppers, I'd say you're crazy. Don't do that. It's too, too labor intensive, too much extra energy, etc. You can grow really great greens with just the cheap 45 watt Kingbo lights or something like them. They're about 30 bucks a piece, you know, and maybe three to five, three to six of them and enough beds. And you can grow the hell out of some greens, greens, if you want to grow some of them, you really probably want to set up some wicking beds. So you can set up a, a wicking bed or two uh, for certain grains. Like spinach doesn't really do very good, in my opinion, uh, in, in a deep water bed. I have not had good luck with it anyway. But lettuces, if the main thing you want to grow is lettuce, then a, 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 let's call it a shallow water bed. Because something like the 15-gallon, uh, the 21-gallon concrete mixing trays that you get at Home Depot... And simple foam that'll float, and a drill with a hole saw, and the right size net pots, and you're golden. And two of those king bows will be about a perfect amount of light for one 21-gallon tray. And lettuce is high dollar. So you could set up one tank. You could use almost anything for a tank, but it'd be really hard to beat a 100-gallon Rubbermaid tub And then you could set a couple of those trays on each side of it. Maybe if you really wanted to do some other things, throw one 50-gallon Rubbermaid um, stock tank on top as an ebb and flow bed. But you don't need to do that. And if you were to take, let's say, a 100-gallon Rubbermaid tub as your main tank and take two 8-foot 4x4s and just put them across with enough space for water to flow back in the middle, I think you could easily plumb four concrete trays together so you have one little pump up into one tray and coming out of the other tray and all you have is water just moving through it no ebb and flow, no complications then your lighting array is one long beam and if you're smart you put one beam there and you set up a way so each set of those two lights, two for each tray can be moved up and down so when when you first seed those trays you bring the lights way down as they grow you bring the lights up Easy peasy. If you want to grow some things that will do better in soil, do some wicking beds. Do some wicking beds right next to it. And what I would do for a wicking bed in this situation, personally, since it's indoors, you're not going to have trouble with it drying out really, really quick. I would not do a flow-through wicking bed. I've done it with the, the small trays. They end up having problems. This is the best way I want put it. I would design it as a flow-through so that water goes in one spot. Once it gets to a certain, it overflows. I would go out there every day and I would turn it on until water flows through it and I would turn it off. All you're doing is just keeping it wet. Keeping it moist. And you probably run it for 30 seconds a day like that. And you're going to have a lot less issues with things hanging up and stuff like that. If something's clogged, you'll catch it really fast. It won't overflow on you. And then what I would do is design as much of this as possible to where if it leaks, it leaks back into the main tank. Yeah, you could do this. And it would be it would be the absolute best use of indoor aquaponics. If you look at all the commercial aquaponics indoor operations, even hydroponics indoor operations, um, they almost exclusively grow leafy greens because that's where the money is. It's fast turnover, it's high dollar, and it's the plant that just does great. Some pelleted, you know, get 20 different varieties of pelleted lettuce seed and start, you know, 20 plants every two weeks and get a rotational system going, go ahead and set up your lights up, set a place to start your plants. I have not had good luck trying to start seed in a net pot. They, it's much better start them in little six-packs or eight-packs or nine-packs or something like that, and then just pop them out, knock the loose dirt off, shove them dirt and all into some rock wool into your uh, into your net pots. Or I, I tell you what I use in my net pots is uh, expanded shale. Cause it's cheap. I can get like a, y- a yard of it for 90 bucks. So I fill it with expanded shell and just kind of make a hole and shove the roots in there and pop them in and they go like crazy. Also, you can do fish. Don't need fish. You can, you can do this basically as like deep water hydroponics. Dump some garage juice in there whenever the plants look like they need some nutrient. Cause you don't need a ton of nutrient to grow greens. Your best fish for this, goldfish. It's cold. Now, heat. Screw heating the garage. No need to heat the garage. 60 degrees, 50 degrees. Greens are usually having, it might be a little bit cold to get the speed of growth you're looking for. 100-gallon um, rubber-made tub for your water tank. Go to Amazon. Use tspaz.com, please. And look up a company for, for heaters called Ahim. I'll, I'll put a link right to the heater I'm talking about. Get a 300-watt Ahim aquarium heater. Uh, I use them in the winter in my office to heat 55-gallon aquariums. I've used them outdoors. to heat 300-gallon freaking IBCs and keep the water a little bit warmer. And bring your water temperature up to about 65 degrees. You're warming the roots. The plants are fine. They'll be happy. They'll grow like crazy for you. If that's not enough, bring the water up to 70. It won't take that much to heat that amount of water. And since you're going to be doing deep water, all your – beds that have plants in them will have a piece of foam covering them so you have less evaporation, less heat loss. So all you got to do is bring the water temperature up 5-10 degrees. That's not a lot of energy. And in the summer, you probably won't have to do it at all. So that's what I would do if you wanted to do that system. And there's there's a hundred ways to do it, but that's that should get you off um, to, to a good start there. Uh, next up, there's an article on, on the Coinbase blog I'll point you to. But Coinbase is now offering, if you'll hold USDC, U.S. dollar coins, on Coinbase, they will pay you 1.25% interest in said same. Basically, they're offering a savings account in cryptocurrency. Now, I don't want to go real long with this segment, and there's a lot of speculation in what I'm giving, but the whole world of cryptocurrency is currently at war with each other. You have the people that believe in Bitcoin that are called the maximalists, And they say Bitcoin is not even really for making payments, it's a store of value, it's digital gold, blah, blah, blah. And everybody else says, you guys are stupid, the whole point of digital currency is to be able to make payments, etc. And the people that say that you're stupid, the whole point of cryptocurrency is to be able to make payments and have a trustless system and, and what have you. They're right, but if enough people treat something like digital gold, then it will become by de facto digital gold. I'm back to no matter what you think, the people that are in power, if they choose to do something, they create a thing. So there's a very interesting podcast I was listening to during my morning walk today from a guy that was part of a a central bank, a small central bank in one of the Caribbean islands. I don't remember which one it was, but it's a, a Dutch Caribbean held island. And he was talking about how the banks are looking at cryptocurrency now, and there is talk, with even in the central bank systems, of starting to add cryptocurrency to their reserve, the same way they hold gold. And the number one cryptocurrency they look toward, because it has a as long a track record as you can have in cryptocurrency, with being a store of value, is Bitcoin. So if and what you would think is, well, the, the banks hate cryptocurrency. But you know what a lot of times happens when people hate something? Instead of trying to make it go away, which they can't do, you co-opt it. If JP Morgan decides they want to hold one quarter of a percent of their holdings in cryptocurrency, and specifically Bitcoin, there's barely enough Bitcoin to do that. And if one bank does it, they all do it. I think that we're about to see banking really start to change with crypto as a driver. Does this mean you should go out and mortgage your kid's college fund and buy Bitcoin? No. No. Does it mean you should go do that and buy Ripple? No. I'm just saying I think that we're about to see a whole new world open up with cryptocurrency. And I do think you're going to see more institutions holding cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin and Ethereum, in some form, Component of a reserve. I don't think it will become their primary reserve. But it's such an easy play and it's really such a small pl- space. There's about 7 million Bitcoins that are unrecoverable. Uh, John McAfee says Bitcoin is going to be worth a million dollars. John McAfee's been saying stuff like that for a long time. Bitcoin is supposed to be well past 50 grand by now, according to Mac- McAfee. Um, but I think he has the potential to possibly be at least partially right. But I think what's really going on here is you're starting to see the entire concept of banking change. And what will be interesting is, how does the government deal with this? Because Coinbase isn't a bank. But yet, they kind of sort of are. Coinbase, in a lot of ways, is a lot like PayPal attached to a cryptocurrency exchange. But what's going to... What's going to happen when somebody says, hey, wait a minute. We can do this. And somebody creates a financial-based lending... I mean, we already have people actually doing debt deals in cryptocurrency. But what if somebody starts playing the full-on bank game using cryptocurrency? Well, maybe that's where Coinbase is headed. I don't know. Am I going to go dump a bunch of money into this right now? No. But... I'll tell you what it would do if I was a high-frequency cryptocurrency trader. Then while I'm holding stablecoin of any kind, I would just go ahead and hold the USDC coin and move my money to Coinbase. And why not make the 1.25% on my money until I'm ready to buy something else? I don't know if it's guaranteed. I don't know if it's a good idea. I'm just telling you, that's what they're saying, and that's where I think we're headed. We're headed to a whole new world here. Last one of the day, this is an article clipping that somebody sent me, and it says volumes about the state of college in America and what's really happening, which is exactly what I said is going to happen. It's falling apart. Uh, Jay sent me this. Hey, Jack, clip this out of my local paper a couple weeks ago in Hartford, Connecticut, offering free college to increase federal grants. The more they give away, the more they earn. The last line tells it all. A declining enrollment has been a growing problem. Here's the article. It's kind of short. Could free college save money? The idea on its face seems unlikely. Could free community college actually save Connecticut money? But proponents are pointing to a recent report from the legislature's nonpartisan fiscal office that predicts that an increase in tuition-free college would bring uh, would make it a net positive for the state's bottom line. Enrollment could surge anywhere from 10 to 45%, increasing revenue from federal grants and student fees at the community colleges. If a 45% increase in enrollment is reached, the program would cost $8.9 million in 2022, but bring in an estimated 10, $10.7 million. In neighboring Rhode Island, a free community college program boosted enrollment by 43% in the first year, according to Rep. Greg Hatter, Democrat Mansfield, and co-chair of the Legislature Higher Education Community, A surge in enrollment is exactly what our colleges need because declining enrollment has been a growing problem in recent years and is contributing to the system's fiscal distress, he said. Okay, so what they're saying is that this is a lot and a little. Number one, colleges are beginning to hurt because less people are going. Number two, the states are figuring out that they can gain gain the system by letting people go to college for free at the community college level and getting enough in grants to more than offset if enough people choose to go. But for the system to work, they can't have a 10% increase. They need like a 40% increase. So not only do they need to open up the community colleges for free, but they need to convince more children to go to community college than are already going, and they get two places they can do that. Kids that were going to go straight to a university – that now realize, well, I can do two years for free and only pay for two years of university as long as I do the right curriculum in community college and make sure my my tr- my credits transfer, or kids that weren't going to go to college at all. Now, you might think, well, this what, what's what's the problem? Well, number one, the federal grant system isn't an open checkbook. There's a point where, hey, we're out of federal money to do this now. If all the states were to do this, that's one problem. My bigger problem is. They're not addressing the entire point here of why less people are going to college. Maybe because the value of college continues to go down. Now, what would happen if more people went to college? The value of college goes down even further. Why is something valuable? Because it's rare. If there isn't some level of scarcity, things are not valuable. So a diamond at least has perceived scarcity, so it's valuable. A perfect diamond... Is worth more. A one-carat perfect diamond is worth more than a one-carat diamond with flaws because one is more rare than the other. One is more difficult to acquire than the other. That means one will have a higher perceived value by the market. Um, what is the value of a piece of Kingsford briquette charcoal? Not very much because they can make tons of it, literally. metric shit billions of tons. But the value of a piece of Kingsford charcoal, even though maybe the other piece that I'm going to just talk about here might be actually a better piece of charcoal to use, is going to be higher than the charcoal that I can walk out to my fire pit and pick up the stuff that didn't burn. Why? Because the Kingsford charcoal is in a bag at the store and you can go buy it anywhere. So then there's another value component to it. It's packaged. So the more scarce something is, and the better it lends itself to packaging into the marketplace, and the better it can be marketed to the people that are going to buy it, the more value it has. So back in the 1980s, when I was a kid, there were quite a few people that were young adults that didn't have high school diplomas. And a high school diploma meant something. When you graduated from high school, you qualified for jobs you didn't qualify for. And it meant something. The graduation rate from high school today, except in failing school districts like the city of Dallas, which is abysmal what their graduation rate is if you look at the real number. But overall, throughout the country, graduation rates are up in the high 90 percentiles. Over 90 percent of people by the age of 20 have a, a high school diploma. So what's the value of a high school diploma? Almost nothing. Not having one might hurt you, but having one won't do anything for you. That's what we've turned college degrees into. An associate's degree used to be a thing. I know they still are, but like having an associate's degree got you jobs that you couldn't get otherwise. Now, unless it's something really, really specialized, why don't you have a full degree? And what does a full degree get you? Somebody just posted an advertisement where they had preferred education as a master's degree with a starting salary of $15 an hour on Facebook. It was a legitimate posting. It checked out, it was real, it wasn't fake. A master's degree? $15 an hour? Why? Because there's lots of people with master's degrees. I think it's Maryland that I talked to one of the teachers from. Um, A teacher in Maryland now has to to their fifth year of teaching to further education to where they have a master's degree. Why do you need a master's degree to teach second grade? You don't. I've said this before, but I I, I worked with a guy that was a client of ours one time when we ran a headhunting company, and he said they needed to hire a whole bunch of CSRs, customer service reps. And he told me everything they needed to do, and I'm like, no, we could, how many of those do you need? He's like, we're going to hire like 40. Okay, well, well, just send me the requirements over and we'll start getting on it for you. So I get this thing and it says, requires bachelor's or higher. This was like a $14 an hour job. Now, it was 15 years ago-ish, but still, 14 bucks an hour, ma- uh, not master's, a bachelor's degree. To answer phone and I, and I call him, I said, "Do you guys really have to have a bachelor's degree? No, we don't, but it's preferred." So, well, I can I can get you a hell of a lot more candidates for this a hell of a lot faster at what you want to pay if it's not required. He goes, "Yeah, it's not required, but it was preferred." I said, "Well, hold on a second. You people answer the phone. I'm imagining these are people you can train in like two weeks, and." Like, is this like an entry-level position that's going to lead to management? he goes, yeah, you might get one or two out of there. You know how it is. Yeah, I know how it is. Then why do you want this? He said, there's just so many people that have them. So this idea that everybody should go to college is devaluing what a college education means. And when you get it, well, you can go for free. What happens is people start going to college and taking whatever they can to get to go for free. And, and this is why the whole thing has to fall apart. It has to fall apart. This can't continue because markets, in the end, market. And that's where we're headed with this. And this is just one more example. I said a few years ago that, that the university system and the public school system as we know it had 10 to 20 years left. And a lot of people in this audience, who I assume you must like what I do or you wouldn't listen to me, told me flat out you're crazy. It's coming. It's starting to fall apart right in front of you. Do you see it? Because it's going to look when it eventually happens, it's going to look like it all happened overnight. We have universities being sold. Universities that are like, like not these like some kind of satellite campus or some like University of Phoenix or something like that, right? No, we're talking about like institutions that are over a hundred years old being sold. I said three years ago there will be colleges closing their doors. Yeah, you're crazy. It's happened. I covered it. There will be big universities that won't go out of business. But they'll be selling off, like, buildings because they don't need them anymore. Because people are just simply not valuing a college education as much as they are an education anymore. What I want to know when I hire you is what can you do for me? And employers for a long time, see what happened is we had from about the boomers all the way up through Gen X, obedient children that went to college. Millennials continued that trend. We talked about their obedience earlier. But early young millennials and this next generation, whatever they're calling them now, right, zennials, are starting to realize like there's no path in this anymore. So now the colleges are starting to starve. They're starting to starve. And I know, yes, they're still running. There's still lots of money. I know that. I get it. But it's only going to get worse from here. This is the thread. You know you see that one thread on the cloth, and you know you shouldn't pull on it, but you can't help yourself and you pull on it and you start and the whole thing starts coming unraveled. the threads are starting to be pulled on. The younger generation is tired of this. They're not all going to go to college anymore, and they shouldn't. The idea that every child should go to college is an oversold nightmare. Without government funding and government-backed loans and putting people in debt for their entire lives, it could have never become a thing. It should have been left alone, and everything government touches, it destroys. In 1975, a person with a bachelor's degree had a hard time not being able to find a job in the middle of one of the worst recessions this country has ever experienced. Today, a bachelor's degree is a hunting license to go look for a job that you can get that doesn't pay a lot more than a lot of blue-collar jobs that people are working without degrees. Costco. Costco pays a $15 an hour starting wage. That's their minimum wage. You go get a job running a checkout counter or stocking shelves at Costco, you make $15 an hour. And we have people getting entry-level positions with degrees for $14 to $18 an hour, holding on to $80,000 or more in debt. The system is dying, and God bless its death. It needs to die. It needs to be transformed, and people need to be only getting educations that actually do something for their future, especially when they're spending money on them. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, remember you can support this show in two different ways. One, by becoming a member. I'll just say you can do that today, and I would appreciate it if you did, and I'll tell you more about membership later this week, because I want to reiterate all the great things that come with membership. But today, we'll just say you can do it if you want to. The other way to do it, the painless way to do it, is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com, where you can find all the things that I've reviewed. I'm not going to say a lot about the item of the day today because I've, I've covered it so many times, but they're Lodge Carbon Steel Seasoned Skillets. I was a fan of cast iron forever. Forever. I mean, my grandmother taught me to cook in cast iron. And when I started using carbon steel, I just started using cast iron less and less and less. One, once it seasons, it's just as stick-free. Two, it heats up faster. Three, and you might think this is bad, it cools down faster. It's not. Because cooking on a gas stove like I do, when you get your skillet really hot and you want to bring the temperature down, it's much easier to bring it down. You have lots more control. It's lighter. I like to, a lot of things I cook, I do not turn with a spatula. I toss it. Learn that skill. It's really easy. You know? Throw some marbles in a, in a pan, like a cheap pan you don't care about, and just practice, and you'll get really good at it really fast. Or some rocks, and learn to toss, right? Um, and it lasts forever, just like, like, uh, like cast iron does. And the big reason I brought this around today, the 12-inch skillet is on sale right now for 24% off on Amazon. So if you go to tspaz.com, you can see the most recent reviews. You can go to the main website, uh, if you get the daily mail, you'll get a link in today's mail about it. But if you had to pick a skillet, so they come in a 10-inch, a 12-inch, and a big 2 handled 15-inch skillet. I love my big 15. And I like the little ones sometimes when you're just doing like a side dish or whatever. But the most versatile one is the 12-inch. It's small enough to toss stuff in. You can put a couple, three steaks in it easy enough to sear them off out of a sous vide. Uh, it's big enough to spread things out when you want to get a good sear so you're not steaming because you got stuff too crowded. It's just awesome. It fits a burner perfectly. It's the pan to have. And at 24% off, if you don't have one, you should pick one up. That's why I made it the item of the day. But remember, you can always help us no matter what you buy. All you got to do is your online shopping where? TSPAS.com. 24% off. If you don't have a carbon steel skillet, get one. People ask me them sometimes, like, when you cook something really sticky, and, like, an odd thing that's stickier than most stuff is when you do, like, skin-on chicken thighs, Man, that I, I don't know what it is. That sticks more than cheese in, in carbon steel. I use kind of a middle of the road um, anodized aluminum stick-free, you know, non-stick skillet made by Oxo Good Grips. I have a link within this article if you want one of those. Um, they're 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 fine for what they are, but I don't like using them all the time because I like to cook at really high temperatures and I don't like to use non-stick skillets. To go get really, really high temperatures. The other thing is you can't put them in the oven. So what I love about my lodge skillets, if I'm going to do a sear of, let's say, a duck breast or a steak or something I want to finish in the oven, I get the oven hot, get the skillet hot, sear the steak, and throw the skillet right in the oven. You can't do that with your nonstick skillets. I still have a place in my life for them, but I have one. Again, there's a link in the show notes where you can see the one that I use. or Not in the show notes, in the, uh, in the notes for this write-up for the Lodge Carbon Steel Skillets, which, again, they're on sale for 24% off. I don't know how long that will last, but that's a hell of a deal. You probably want at least one of these in your life. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today this week. Um, we don't really have a theme for this week. But we got some good music, some really good music I'm excited about this week. Uh, our song today is by a band called Huey Lewis and the News. And if you're like my age, you're like, a band called. Pff, everybody knows Huey Lewis is. the News. I don't think they're that well known anymore. I bet a lot of our younger listeners are like, who the hell is this? And this song's called The Tip to be Square. And I have to say, by the time this song came out, you were square for saying the word square. Like, square goes back to the 40s. Oh, he's a square, right? Like, uh, which meant he was like straight-laced, you know? Not the guy that wore the leather leather jacket in, in the 50s, right? You're square. And I think it was intentional. And Huey Lewis and the News were a band that they didn't really make it big until they were in their 30s. And they were all about like taking care of themselves at that point. But, I mean, Huey Lewis grew up like he was a beatnik kid. Like his parents were hippies. He grew up like he hiked, like after high school, he like, hiked through Europe and smoked a bunch of dope and all. So he wasn't really that straight-laced. But by the time they were in their 30s, the, and the band started making a lot of money. They're like, hey, we need to take care of ourselves. We've seen what happened to people that made it young and were stupid. So they kind of had this, they looked good. You know, they wore like kind of like suits, kept their hair, all that stuff. And the song talks all about that. But if you really listen to the undertone of this song, what he's actually saying is what's hip or what's cool is to be what you want to be. And the reason I'm doing this isn't, So I can be cool to people that think this is cool. Or even in spite of the fact a lot of people don't think it is. I'm doing it because it's what the hell I want. And that's cool. Doing what you want for your own reasons and letting the chips fall where they may. Because that means no one else is calling the shots. If you behave a certain way because it's what people expect from you, you're not being true to yourself. Whether it's good or bad doesn't even matter. Follow your own heart. The other thing I always liked about this song is the irony that over the years it's become more true and less in the way that it was made. In other words, there was a saying back in the 90s. Be nice to nerds. You'll probably end up working for one someday. I believe Bill Gates said that. Boy, that's more true now than it was even back in the 90s. The, the people that were thought of as kind of the outcasts or whatever, the brainiacs and whatever—they're running the world today. Kind of hip to be square, and it's a good jam. Most I mean, we might have to do a Huey Lewis in the news week, honestly. They have some good jams. With that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.